Our scripture reading is Psalm 146. This evening we conclude this time through the Heidelberg Catechism, which means we're concluding our study of the Lord's Prayer, which is how the Catechism ends. And so I'm going to be using these last or this last Lord's Day also to say some uh, things by way of conclusion for our entire time in the Lord's Prayer. One of the ideas we've been pulling through this study is that God gives us this prayer that as we pray it, we are formed and changed by it. And that we see that as a pattern, not just in the Lord's Prayer, but throughout the Psalms. And so as we read Psalm 146, you can already be considering what does it mean to pray these words, anticipating that by them, them being God's Word, the Holy Spirit is working in us to change and shape us. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are confident in the promises you have given to us that you are at work when your word is proclaimed. It is in response to those promises that we humbly pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit so that we might understand your word, receive it by faith, and respond with faith and grateful obedience. We know that this does us no good apart from that blessing. This is not a tool that we control or manipulate, but is something for which we depend upon you. And so we pray that you would do this for us, through this, the teaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Heidelberg Catechism is Lord's Day 52. This evening, we're focusing especially on the the second and third question and answers, but we'll read all three of these as our confession of faith in response to God's Word. The Catechism being located here in our order of worship reminds us of the role that it plays. It never replaces Scripture. It's never over Scripture. It is rather a summary of God's Word and our confession of faith in response to God's Word. Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. 
How do you conclude this prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. What does that little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be. For it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in many ways, number one on the outline simply is the introduction to our lesson this evening, and so I simply want to begin there. Our, the language of our catechism, especially in question answer 129 about the word amen, says something that challenges us to think wisely about corporate prayer, about what is happening when we pray something together. Letter A on your outline. In question answer 129, the Catechism challenges us to express something different from what we feel. This is the thing I want us to uh, own up to, to take seriously from the Catechism. It's something I've been trying to challenge us with throughout the study of the Lord's Prayer. The great question, if we pray aloud a prayer together that is printed in the bulletin, if we say a refrain after portions of a prayer that you did not even say, it was just me up here talking, then how can it be said that you are praying sincerely? Part of the answer is to take seriously what the Catechism says at the, in question answer 29. I want to begin here at the end. A little word, amen, express. Amen, amen means this shall truly and surely be. Most simply, the word amen simply means truly. And so to say at the end of the prayer is to express this will truly be. Now listen to this sentence. For it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. That the word amen is acknowledging that you don't even desire the things you pray for as much as you should and that it is more certain that God hears it than that you even desire it. You are expressing overtly, explicitly, clearly in that prayer that you are praying something that is more than, different than what you actually feel. And so the great question at the, time, at the end of our time studying the Lord's Prayer is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with the fact that on the Lord's Day morning, we come into God's presence and we offer together a prayer of confession that may be very different than what many of us are feeling at the moment. Now, you know how the objection goes. For something to truly to be sincere, it has to be overflowing from inside of you on the spot in the moment. And if it's not, well, then it must not truly be sincere. Well, that can't be correct because the Bible gives us a prayer book. That's what the Psalms are. Clearly, the intention not being that you have to be overflowing in the moment to say it because it's giving you words to say that are from the outside of you. Our catechism is telling us that is what is happening in the Lord's Prayer, and that is good. The prayer is given to challenge us to pray something we would not have prayed otherwise, and we need to own and embrace this. 
This is something we're seeking to embrace as a congregation. The reality of what we are doing being something that is corporate, a together, a shared thing. This is something that desperately needs to be recovered in the Christian church today and that has been lost in much of the Christian church for a very long time. We typically think, and I don't mean, by we, I don't mean, you know, just broad evangelical churches out there somewhere. I mean in Reformed churches. We typically think of worship as simply a group of individuals doing together what they could do individually. And so we could study the Bible individually. We also do it together on Sunday. We could pray individually. We also do it together on Sunday. We could sing individually. We also do it together on Sunday. But that is not what is happening. We are not a bunch of individuals doing something side by side. We are rather the corporate body of Christ. And we're doing a together thing that you could not do individually. What happens in worship is something that could not happen at another time. It can only happen as God's people are gathered together on the Lord's day. Now what we are seeking to do is recover not just the doing of that, but a love for it. When you are reading a prayer, I know, we know, it can be difficult to love what we are doing. And so we need to be thinking about not just why do we do this, but why should we love doing it? There's an irony in this. Yes, we're still under letter A. There's an irony in this. If you arrive at a church and you're not used to it, and you have a bulletin with the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer being said aloud, and a bunch of printed uh, prayers and scriptures that are said responsibly, and the word amen being said together, what are, what are you going to say to that? It seems kind of Catholic, doesn't it? Well, here's the irony of this. At the time of the Reformation, one of the great errors that the church had fallen into, that we as the church had fallen into following Rome, the error we had fallen into was that worship was simply something done up front by the priest, and the church who was gathered together was not involved and didn't necessarily even know what was going on because it was being done in Latin and you might not have spoken it. The great error of Rome at the time of the Reformation was everything being done up front for you and you just sat there. What the reformers recovered was the involvement of the congregation. Congregational engagement, participation in worship was a reformation emphasis. Now, different traditions embraced it in different ways, expressed it in different ways. Singing, for example, is one of them. But what they sought to recover as a reformation theme was the congregation being involved. It should be in your language. You should understand it. You should know what's going on. You should be participating. Well, Rome learned from that. And what has happened since then is that Protestant churches have forgotten it. So now if you go into a typical evangelical or also many Reformed churches, worship is mostly something done up front by the minister, and we don't do a whole lot of anything except maybe singing. That is actually the Roman Catholic error. And the idea of participation, a creed, the Lord's Prayer, congregational amens, responses, all of those things, that is a reformational emphasis. We have it all backwards. Now, there are reasons in the history of the church we got there, but we are seeking to recover that older wisdom of the importance of the congregation participating in worship. And when we do that, we acknowledge that it challenges us. It means we are entering into saying and doing something that we would not have said and done otherwise. And so we have to ask, what does it mean then to worship sincerely? If it's not simply the spontaneous overflowing of what we are feeling, but instead something we enter into, what does it mean to do that sincerely? 
Well, this is something, as I said, we learned from the Psalms. Letter B, the Lord's Prayer, like the Psalms, challenges us to do many things. And the point here is the challenges us. It gives us themes, it gives us things to say that we wouldn't have said otherwise. To give thanks in all circumstances. Psalm 34 says, at all times I will thank the Lord. Well, okay. So do you only pray that? If you can sincerely say at that moment that you have thanked the Lord for every last thing that has happened to you in your life? No, what are you doing when you pray that? You're inviting being changed by it, being turned toward God with gratitude so that God's word as we pray it is a means by which God directs us to himself. In fact, you pray it because you don't feel what it says and you need to be changed by what it is saying. To acknowledge the reality of evil. Think of all of the psalms that force you to sing about the reality of evil in the world, something you might prefer to hide from or ignore, but God's word, the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil, challenges us to repeatedly acknowledge that truth. And finally, to turn toward God and away from idolatry. We just sang Psalm 115 together, making fun of the idols of the world, saying that to God alone belongs the praise But in doing that, again, the rightness of praying it is not, does that perfectly reflect your heart? Rather, you say, this doesn't reflect my heart as it should, and I need this word, I need to pray this so that I can be turned toward God as I should be. Our problem is we we lack categories for this. We think there are two things happening. There's either the person who is just really good at sincerely praying on the spot and saying all sorts of earnest things, and that's really sincere, or it's just a dead, lifeless formalism. And we need a category for sincerely embracing something that in many ways is a matter of going through motions. Letter C. Deadly formalism is a danger, but so is a performative spontaneity. So here's the problem. Sounding spontaneously sincere is a skill you can learn. Phrases to use, ways of saying things, change, have you ever done this purposely? Change up how you pray just so it sounds more sincere? Why does that make it more sincere? My point is, sincerity can also be performed. And so you haven't avoided anything by not using form prayers. You're probably just saying a lesser prayer, A prayer with less theological depth, less historical depth, less scriptural depth, because you're making it up on the spot. Deadly formalism is a danger, but so is performative spontaneity. The Lord's Prayer calls us to have a faith-filled desire to be changed and formed by it. So, we've been wrestling with this throughout this time in the Lord's Prayer. I want to attempt here at this point to pull that whole theme together. Number two on your outline is going to move quickly, all right? So don't be worrying about time here. I want to try here, letter C, to pull this whole thing together. We pray something because we know we don't feel or think it as we should. Why is that not insincere? Because it is sincerely part of who we are that we are a person who prays this. It is sincerely part of who we are that it is our identity that we are part of the people who pray the Lord's Prayer, and we are sincerely embracing that identity. Another way of trying to say it, you, you're in the Lord's Prayer, and you're praying, give us this day our daily bread. 
And you know that's humbly acknowledging you should be depending upon God every day and not depending upon wealth that you have piled up. And that that's a difficult prayer because you don't always relate to God that way. Well, in that moment then, are you being insincere? No, because you are sincerely, as a sincere expression of who you are, choosing to do it to be reminded by it. And what I want to suggest to you is that that ought to be a joyful experience. That ought to be a glad experience, and it ought to feel like a whole person experience. That we're crying out to the Lord saying, we don't relate to him in this way as we should, and we are personally, passionately, as who we are, seeking to relate to him in that way. And so we'd say, Lord, make this prayer my prayer. And that asking him to make it your prayer is itself a sincere sort of thing. And we do it toward desiring the moment when that prayer would naturally overflow from us. You see, it's not instead of it being the natural overflow of our hearts. It's because we want it to be. We desire that it would be. I've used the example before. I wanted to use it again. There are many things in life where we think this way more naturally. And we need to learn to think this way about what worship is, what is happening in worship. I have the habit, I enjoy hugging my children before they go to bed at night. Now, there are times where I am distracted. I'm not in a good mood. Maybe my wife and I have had an argument or something, and I'm not feeling like hugging my children. I'm not feeling it at all. And my children, because of the habit, they presume upon it, and they know they're allowed to sort of break through what is going on and demand a hug from me, and I will hug them. Now, the question for you is, if my mind is somewhere else, it's on the thing that's stressing me out, the reason I didn't feel like hugging anyone at that moment, and I hug them anyway, am I being insincere? Well, that's not really even the right question. In the moment, does the hug reflect exactly what I'm feeling? No. But what usually happens? It reminds me of who I am and who my child is. It reminds me of my relationship with them. It reawakens in me like, oh yes, this is important to me. And in fact, it is sincere because one of the things it's reminding me of is what is true about our relationship. What is sincerely true. It is objectively, sincerely true that I love my child. And the act of hugging is not about is it sincerely expressing the feeling in the moment. It's about that relationship being continually formed, being reminded of that relationship, embracing that relationship, acting out of that relationship. That is what is happening in Christian worship. Through the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the Word, our prayers, our singing together, it's not, first of all, about the immediate overflow of feeling in the moment, but nor is it detached from the importance of sincerity. It's about who we are, being reminded of it, being re-engaged in it, being reformed in it, re-embracing who we are, being reawakened to who we are in Christ. And all of that ought to be embraced sincerely. And what I want to set before you is that there is in that wisdom, I'm trying to argue a biblical wisdom from the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms, there is in that wisdom something that is deeply felt, deeply experiential, Because you see, if it's up to you to generate sincere feelings, that is exhausting. And part of what Christian worship is, is God embracing you and saying, this is who you are. These are your prayers. This is your relationship with him as your creator. And that is all a deeply felt experiential thing to have happen. We need to get past the thinner idea of experience, just feeling in the moment, 
Be willing to embrace these objective things and then discover even deeper feeling on the other side of that way of life, that way of embracing worship. Worship, prayer, works from the outside in, a means by which God changes us. All right, thereby a conclusion to our entire time in the Lord's Prayer. This is not just why we do what we do, but why we ought to love what we do as the church of Jesus Christ. Second, a countercultural prayer. This is pertaining now to question and answer 128 about the conclusion. The traditional conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to relate to the world counterculturally. What is that conclusion? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So, don't make too much of a transition here. Hear this in the light of what we just said about how prayer functions, what God is inviting us to do as we pray the Lord's Prayer. These words that we say every Lord's Day, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, positions us counterculturally against the trends, the way of thinking and living in the culture around us, and it does so by forming us in this way. It is anti-power worship against the worship of power in our culture. What is the phrase from our catechism? This means we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful king. The Swiss Reformed writer J.J. von Allman argues that this statement of the Lord's Prayer is specifically political, over against the claims of political power, saying, no, to God belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory. And that those words are positioned over against all other claims of power in the world. And as we pray them, yeah, not a matter of felt overflowing in the moment, but you're expressing something about where your loyalties are, where your commitments are, what your identity is as the church of Jesus Christ. Letter B, anti-chaos and despair. See, on the one hand, our culture worships power. This positions us against that. Our culture also embraces a view of the world in which everything is just meaningless chance, in which all should lead to despair because it's all just pointless. Well, over against that, when we pray this, we say, as our all-powerful king, the catechism says, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. Romans 8, God works all things together for the good of his people. That is being expressed in this prayer as well. And every time you pray that, you are fighting against that despair. You are fighting against that giving over to all of it just being meaningless chaos. We're saying, no, to God belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that means he is both willing and able to give me all that is good. That language echoes back to Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism about God's providence. The, the expression of God's providence, that, he, that the, the promise that he will work all things together for our good, he is willing to do this because he is faithful father. He is all able to do this because he is almighty God. And brothers and sisters, what a prayer to offer when you don't feel like it. Do you see in this prayer in particular, the power of praying something precisely because you don't feel it. Precisely because you are tempted to feel like it is all just chaos and despair, you pray, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You pray it 
Not insincerely. This is who you are. You have been baptized. You belong to the church of Jesus Christ. You're one of his people. You have that identity of trusting in him in that way. But you pray that you might feel it more. That you might trust it more. Rest in it more. And so you pray it humbly acknowledging you are not there as you should be. And that God would bring you into it. Letter C. Anti-self-worship. We say we have a culture that worships power, a culture that says it's all just chaos and despair. We also have a culture obsessed with the worship of the self. But what does our catechism say? Why do we pray this conclusion? Because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. In this connection, we think of what we just sang from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Here we have a beautiful echo of Lord's Day 1 of the Catechism that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The language of 1 Corinthians 6, that you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. This sort of decentering of our identity as being found in someone else, given to us by our Creator, earned by the redemption accomplished by Christ. Our culture is obsessed with self-definition. We make up who we are. And there are progressive versions of this. There are deeply conservative versions of this. All of them are a worship of the self. Not only is that rebellious, it is a crushing burden no one can bear. This is what people inevitably find. It is exhausting. It is impossible to make ourselves up from scratch at every moment. And it is glorious good news that God comes to us and says that he gives us an identity in Christ, that we are not our own, but that we belong to him. It can be difficult to cling to that truth counterculturally, and we can be tempted simply to want to cling to it in a way that condemns things, but we must learn to cling to it in a way that shows how glorious it is. The beauty of resting in a secure identity given to us by Christ. As much as it is a challenge, it is good news. It is gospel. Because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. And then finally, number three. Back to question and answer 129. So trying to tie all this together. So point one on corporate prayer. What's the idea? We're praying in a way that forms us. Point two, a countercultural prayer gives us an illustration from the conclusion of how that works when we pray, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And now what I want to suggest is that all of that is summed up with the word, amen. Reviving the amen, number three on your outline. This small word sums up all of reality. And I want to be careful here. I just found out a few weeks ago that Dr. Garcia is going to be speaking on this idea in his first talk for the Pentecost Festival. The word amen as a way of summing up what it means to be human. I think I know some of the things he might be going to say, but I want to give you just a bit of a glimpse of what that idea would mean. The word amen is a word of response. It's a word of saying truly to something that has already been said. Therefore, letter A on your outline, The word amen expresses who we are as creatures. God initiates and sustains our existence. We respond with praise and gratitude. God speaks. We respond with faith in his word. 
We could add more. God gives us the promises of the covenant. We respond with faith in those promises. All of those responses could be summarized by the word amen. He brings us into existence and the word amen acknowledges our receiving of that good gift of living in relationship with our creator. All paths of rebellion could be summarized as refusing to say amen to what God has said to us. God speaks in his word, our amen is our receiving of what he has spoken. And by the way, this doesn't just mean the word amen, but all things we might say by way of receiving, embracing God's first acting in creation, in his word, and in salvation. God speaks in his word, we respond in faith. Now I said in the heading, reviving the amen. Why? Well, Part of the great project in the Reformed tradition of trying to recover congregational participation, our engagement in worship, recovering from the influences of uh, revivalism and those sorts of things in the history of the church, could be summed up as reviving the use of the word amen in worship. That the word amen should never be something said by the minister on our behalf, but should be a word that we say together as a congregation by which we corporately, in a shared way, own and express our agreement with what has been said. There have been times in the history of the church where there were attempts to recover congregational participation. I recently read uh, the history in one denomination, and through all the fights and arguments, the one thing they ended up with, well, there were actually three things, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the corporate Amen. Reviving the amen was often that initial signal, trying to get the congregation back to being engaged in worship. This is a scriptural pattern we see. Letter B, the word amen is used in many ways in scripture. And all of them have in view the response of God's people to what God has done, to what God has spoken. First Chronicles 16 First Chronicles 16, after the recovery of the Ark of the Covenant, David leads Israel in prayer, much of it language familiar from the Psalms. And the conclusion goes like this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. There's similar scenes in the book of Revelation, and it's interesting to ask, how did they all say Amen at the same time? Well, they, they had to have planned it somehow. They knew after a certain phrase is when they said amen. I mean, they didn't print bulletins. I'm pretty sure about that. But somehow they said how this was going to go. And that didn't make it less sincere, less meaningful, because the people were sincerely, meaningfully entering into the doing of that, identifying themselves as people who say amen at that point. And the identifying themselves in that way is itself a sincere expression. It is who you are all the way down, indeed in a full embodied way, saying it. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. Speaking of Christ, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now, there's so much rich theology here. I suspect Dr. Garcia is going to use this verse, actually. But part of the point here is that Christ is the, he is the amen of God. 
He is the perfect amen. The one who lives perfectly in response to God's creation. The one who responds perfectly to God's word, for he is the word made flesh. Jesus is the perfect amen. And it is therefore through him that we are able to say amen. Well now, doesn't that already give a sense of of charging every amen we say with deep meaning and significance, that it is an in Christ thing. When we say amen, we are participating in our union with Christ, experiencing that. He is the one who does that perfectly. We then participate in it as we speak that word as the covenant people. And then the end of the book of Revelation, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Many have argued for a connection between those words, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, and amen. The amen being a prayer for the continued fulfillment of what God has promised Again, that being the end of Revelation, it's this idea of this is now our posture. This is who we are as the church, those who say amen to God and to his promises. But what I hope this persuades you of, both the theological ideas, the use of the Psalms and prayer, those examples of amen, is that the amen is not about individual expression. It's not about what you feel in the moment. It's not saying, oh, I really liked that point the pastor made. It's rather saying something objective about the word of God and our response to God's word. When the benediction is given and we say amen, it's not about us feeling blessed. It's about us saying, yes, truly, objectively, because I am part of God's covenant people, God is blessing us now. And the amen is owning, acknowledging, receiving that that blessing is really happening. I'm afraid that too many of us think that how we say amen expresses something about our feeling. And here's what's ironic. I think that means some of us like to say it quietly because we're afraid we're going to show too much feeling. So I want to challenge you. The word amen should never be mumbled. It should never be said quietly. The word amen is something we should be entering into corporally with the purpose of each other hearing it because it is precisely a corporate thing that we are doing together. And when you do that, you are not saying something about your inner feeling. This is true for all that we do in worship. All matters of posture in worship are singing. It's not about showing how spiritual we are, what we feel about something. It's rather our entering into it corporately as the church. Letter C. We use the word amen not as spontaneous feeling, but as receiving and embracing our identity as the church of Jesus Christ. We could say, in other words, the word amen is all gospel. Because it is about a prior identity being given to us, a promise being announced, something God has done, and it is our response of faith to what he has done. Letter D, it is good news that God calls us to say amen to his promises in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's prayer for the things that you have given us to pray, and for the expression of confidence that it is more true that you hear our prayer than that we even feel or desire what we pray for. 
For all of this, we praise and glorify and exalt you as our creator. And we ask that as we pray these things that you have given to us, that you would deepen within us our confidence in them, our delight in them, our joy and gladness in being part of your people and receiving those promises by faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.